Some stones saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face to face. If you have family or friends who can't watch Heart of the Matter live on television, they can go to www.hotm.tv and watch it streaming from anywhere in the world. I was a born-again Mormon, the book that sort of started it all, uh, manuscript available on PDF download. Go to that same website. Actually, go to bornagainmormon.com, and you click on download, and it prints and you have it right in your hands within minutes. Every week of every month throughout the year, we meet for Bible studies, uh, both at the U of U and Utah State. You can go to www.calvarycampus.com for more information. This week at Utah State, they're not meeting, just to let those people up there know, uh, because of Easter and some things happening there, but we are meeting at the U of U, Easter or not. And hey, beginning Sunday, April 4th, this coming Sunday, uh, KUTR The Truth AM 820 will be airing Heart of the Matter replays from 1 to 2 p.m. every afternoon. So instead of sitting on the couch eating potato chips and watching some boring game on television, sit on the couch, eat potato chips, and listen to a boring rebroadcast of me. Uh, not really. KTR The Truth, they play great stuff. AM 820 every Sunday afternoon from 1 to 2 p.m. And uh, where this week's episode will be rebroadcast. Well, come on over, my friends. Uh, over the years, um, you have met most of my family members. And uh, excuse me, closer. In fact, maybe one of you stand right here. And Nicholas, come on. Yeah, can we pick him up on uh, one? Oh, there, there it is. All right, there you are. Ah. Uh, oh. They don't do that for me. Um, thank you. I try. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we, uh, I want to introduce you uh, to my eldest daughter, Mallory. You've met her once before, years ago, and her husband, Nicholas. Now, Nicholas is from Sweden, and Mallory and he reside in um, really close, at, near a forest by the sea over there. And in July, they're due to have their first child, which is going to make me a grandfather. So words cannot describe the joy I felt when um, I heard this news. And it's an amazing act and fact of God that while uh, this couple is standing here, God is knitting a child together. 
that will forever be uh, here, laugh, think, love. It's going to change their lives, and I love them so very much. Now, um, Mallory and Nicholas are seekers. They uh, are not sure about uh, much in terms of the things that we often say we know, but their hearts are open and willing, and in fact, uh, very honorable seekers, and I appreciate that in them. Many of you, our viewers, are in the same place. You seek. You don't know. You don't believe. You aren't sure. But this is the place that my oldest daughter and her husband are in, and I want you to know that I love them if they never come to believe what I believe. And I respect and, and, and will always care for them and love them for who they are as my daughter and as her husband. That is my obligation as a believer to love. But your prayers and uh, thoughts for Mallory, her husband, Nicholas, and their future baby, uh, we love you. Thanks. Okay, my girl. Thank you. Give me a hug. Swedes don't like to hug. I'm kidding. All right. And uh, with that, let's have a prayer. God of heaven, we thank you and love you and appreciate all you do. And so we pray you'll be with us tonight. Be with our audience, wherever they may be, our studio audience, our technical staff, our volunteers. Uh, be with me that I will say what you want me to say in a way that you want me to say it. And uh, that our hearts and minds and eyes will be open to what you want us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, when it comes to our topic for tonight, which is church. Uh, there are a few angles people take. I can think of about five. The first one is that all churches, some people will say all churches, all religions are good, all are true, all are equally correct. This opinion uh, says that we all worship the same God and we ought to all be able to approach him in any way we please and that would be acceptable. Now, I refute that stance based on logic alone, among many other reasons, since contradictory statements cannot all be true. One can't say A is right and B is wrong, and the other one can't say B is right and A is wrong and cohabitate in the same open universalist type of approach. So the second thought says that no churches or religions are true, that they all have error, they all fail, and they all are in one way or another um, a product of human imagination. In the way humans understand religion or church today, I would agree with this position in many ways, not all. The third position says that there is one single true church or religion on the face of this earth. That, and it is defined by buildings and leaders and doctrines and practices and rites and rituals and that are all singularly stamped as approved by God. Uh, this is what Catholicism and Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc., tend to teach and to try to get people to believe. The fourth position says that some religions have some truth and others have other truths and that they all have some good and they all help humanity sort of help reach God and in the end it all works out, so don't worry, be happy. Uh, while I agree that most, most earthly religious institutions might teach some truth, this is not the yardstick by which we tell whether they are true or not. Um, I mean, some truth is not what I want to spend my life learning. 
I want to personally learn the truth. The fifth attitude, which I wholly embrace, defines the human idea, or excuse me, redefines the human idea of church altogether. Now certainly in the Bible, church in the New Testament does mean a gathering of believers. It means that both in a, a communal area sense, a geographical sense, it can mean in a home. It does, isn't limited to the number of people or anything like that. But the word uh, ecclesia is used to define a group or gathering of people like we do on Sundays. But where we might use the term church to describe a place where people physically meet with like-minded believers, the, true, the truest sense of the church on earth is not defined by earthly memberships, dress codes, or cement and mortar um, buildings, but by people who are united in their faith, belief, and allegiance to God through Christ. Um, this is probably the fullest definition of the universal church. Now, the debate between Mormonism and true biblical Christianity, Mormonism would have the world believe that there is one true brick and mortar uh, church on the face of this earth and that it was literally set up by Jesus Christ when he was here and it's defined by priesthoods and authority and membership roles and tithing receipts. But Bible-believing Christians uh, the world over know that God's true church is constructed of believing people no matter where they have attended or attend, uh, or even if they do attend religious services. Now, that's an extreme, but nevertheless, that's how it is. This means a woman sitting in the Sahara Desert who has never stepped foot in a brick-and-mortar church but has a heart changed by God through Christ is just as much part of the true church, just as much as Billy Graham. The difference between the LDS and the Christian perspective uh, results in wholly different types of people, uh, or, of religiously inclined people. Mormonism approach creates a person whose allegiance is to the religious institution, while the biblical perspective creates a person or believer whose allegiance relies solely upon their relationship to God and whose brick-and-mortar church alliances are secondary uh, at best in importance. The LDS approach creates a rigidity in motion and restricting the religious expressions of a people uh, to what men say and do and demand and command, where the Christian approach allows God to work with people in many miraculous and diverse ways. The LDS view creates kind of a uniformity, sort of like a McDonald's, where the church meeting in Guam tastes exactly like the church meeting in Cincinnati. Religionists are very proud of consistency, and they love that consistency factor. The other view, the biblical view, shares in a universal, uh, in a universal reception of the Bible, and, but it allows for all divergent flavors and ways to cook and ways to bring in this, this different flow depending on culture and people and temperaments and, and all these different factors. At the end of the day, and as a result of the LDS One True Church model, people are told all sorts of things that are required by God for them to do in order for them to be acceptable of Him. 
and the brick and mortar members of the church are not really one bit different than the brick and mortar uh, prisoners of a penitentiary. Uh, penitentiary, whatever it is. So let's take a minute and talk about what the LDS say the Church of Jesus Christ is and how this teaching affects their members and then what the Bible says the church is and how this generally is manifested in believers of that. In order to really understand this LDS position on what the true church is, we have to go back to Joseph Smith's beginnings. He claims to have been confused about what church or religious institution was true that he should join. And as a young teenager, he says that he went in search of an answer in a grove of trees and God told him, uh, and he asked God, not what is truth, God, but he asked God, which church is true? Which church is right? Which church should I join? That's almost like going to God and saying, you know, which neighbor should I shoot? It's not a right question. You know, you're not going to get an answer to that because the churches are not based denominationally on their truth. Now, I know God can lead people to certain churches and others, but when it comes to this universal search for the, the true church, it's found in believers, and the Bible articulates that perfectly. Joseph reported that God responded to his errant question and told him, quote, to join none of them, that they were all wrong, that their creeds were an abomination, and those who professed those creeds were all corrupt. It's really interesting to me that God did not respond by saying to Joseph what he says in Scripture about what the true church is. So to me, the whole Socratic dialogue deal between Joseph Smith and God on which church is true is highly suspect. I mean, why would the Bible de detail what the true church is for us plainly in the New Testament and yet God speaking to Joseph Smith would totally go counter to that. I, I don't get it. Anyway, God's response and further revelations to Joseph Smith confirmed the LDS belief that there was this proper institutionalized religion established when Jesus Christ was on the earth and that Joseph Smith himself was ordained to bring this institution back to earth. This is what the LDS missionaries and the members try to get people to believe, that that God has this one institutionalized brick and mortar true church and that Mormonism is it. And in reality, it's really quite a comforting message because everyone wants to have certainty in their life. We all want the luxury of not having to think for ourselves. We all want to be on the winning team. We want to belong to the true church. So when you appeal to someone's ego and say, this is the true church, you have finally discovered it. Why, that's quite a, a calling card for missionaries to give people who are kind of searching and lost in their life. But the inherent problems associated with this completely man-made position are nothing short of staggering. Um, where Mormonism claims that so-called biblical Christianity is proven itself a huge failure by the fact that we lack uniformity and unity in some ways and that we deal with our fair share of financial and moral issues, Mormonism fails to see how its successes in uniformity and conformity and financial success is fueled by the souls of people who are trapped in religious bondage. In Mormonism, the thinking has been done. In Mormonism, the spirit does not work outside of the confines of accepted culture and geographical ward boundaries. In Mormonism, the church, the religious institution, the brethren, the men, they are everything. What they say goes. 
if a brick and mortar church is really true, then flesh and blood must be completely obeyed. In November of 1857, Apostle Heber C. Kimball said, quote, If you are told by your leaders to do a thing, do it. None of your business if it's right or wrong, end quote. In 1995, late LDS LDS prophet Gordon B. Hinckley said, as quoted in the LDS magazine, The Ensign, quote, Hold to the church. Do not ever lose sight of the fact that the church must ever remain preeminent in your lives if you are going to be happy as the years pass. Never let yourselves be found in a position of fighting the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You cling to it and be faithful to it. You uphold and sustain it. You teach its doctrines and live by it. And I do not hesitate to say that your lives will be richer and happier because of that. Now, let me read how a Christian would say these very same words, but with the proper Christian emphasis. You ready? A Christian would say, hold to the Lord. Do not ever lose sight of the fact that the Lord is preeminent in your lives, whether you are faithful to him or not. If you want to experience his joy as the years pass, hang on to him. Never let yourselves be found in a position of fighting against his love for you. You cling to him and be faithful in believing him. You uphold and you sustain him. You teach his doctrines and live by him. And while the Lord has... uh, And while the Lord told us that life could get tough for trusting him, I do not hesitate to say here that your lives here and hereafter will be full of freedom and joy and love because of it. Do you see the difference in the approach? The LDS do not have the relationship where they trust the Lord preeminently in all they do. They are told over and over again, put your trust in the brick and mortar in the men behind it, okay? Within Mormonism, everything, and I mean everything, is about the church. LDS prophet Harold B. Lee said regarding Mormonism and the men who run it, quote, your safety and ours depends on whether or not we follow the ones whom the Lord has placed to preside over his church. He knows who he wants to preside over his church and he will make no mistake. The Lord chooses whom he wants to preside over his church and he will make no mistake. There's that lulling, repetitive, mesmerizing talk that they tend to do. The Lord doesn't do things by accident. Let's keep our eyes on the cross. No. On Jesus. No. Let's keep our eyes on the president of the church. Eternal safety and salvation is also tied to everything the church requires that you do. LDS Apostle Bruce R. McConkie said, Salvation comes by obedience to the whole of the gospel law. Meaning what he was saying. And then McConkie quotes Joseph Smith who said, Any person who is exalted to the highest mansion has to abide the celestial law and the whole law too. This statement from Joseph Smith called caused... Uh, Bruce R. McConkie, the apostle, to say this. Thus, a man may be damned for a single sin. There is no respite of peace for these people. People ask, why do we do this show? To free them from this type of uh, institutionalized spiritual bondage. 
which it just pours out over them and they don't even know it. When people allow a brick and mortar church to be the end of their salvation, the institution owns them wholly. And Mormonism just keeps piling the requirements on, on and on and on. Spencer W. Kimball, supposed prophet of the LDS church during my youth, said of the Mormon priesthood, which is only available through the Mormon church, quote, men require priesthood for exaltation. No man will ever reach godhood who does not hold to the LDS priesthood. You have to be a member of a higher priesthood, an elder 70 or high priest, and today is the day to get it and magnify it. So LDS apostle Heber C. Kimball said, do what your leaders tell you to do, whether it's right or wrong. LDS prophet Harold B. Lee said, our very own safety and security relies on whether we follow the men of the church. Mormon prophet Gordon B. Hinckley said, hold to the church. Do not ever lose sight of the fact that the church will ever remain preeminent in your lives if you want to be happy as the years pass. Apostle McConkie said, quote, that a man may be damned for committing a single sin against the LDS laws. And LDS prophet Spencer W. Kimball said, quote, men require the LDS priesthood for exaltation, but they don't stop there. LDS Apostle McConkie also tied salvation to going to the LDS temple, which is, the o- which is only available to members of the LDS church. In his book, The Mortal Messiah, he wrote, quote, with temples, men can be exalted. Without them, there is no exaltation, end quote. Brigham Young taught that salvation is available only to people who have a spouse eternally by their side. And of course, a spouse can only be eternally by your side if you go to the LDS-owned temples and get in by the approval of the LDS men. This is what Young spouted. One, uh, he said, quote, if a man wishes to be saved... He cannot be saved without a woman by his side. Uh, LDS leaders have gone so far as to tie salvation to accepting the LDS church and the founder of its faith, saying, quote, I know that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God, and this is his gospel of salvation. If you do not believe it, you will be damned, every one of you. That's in Journal of Discourses. Listen, bringing the whole thing home in one foundational point, The founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith himself, summarizes his own contribution to this system of religion that he came up with by saying this as found in History of the Church 6, 408 through 409. You might have heard this before. Listen closely to what he said of himself. Quote, I have more to boast of than ever any man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. A large majority of the whole have stood by me. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did a work such as I. That's a quote from the founder of this religion and this church. This is where all Latter-day Saints allegiance truly lie, my friends, upon Joseph Smith, upon his person, his visions, his dreams, and his religious superstructure institution that he said must be fully embraced in order for people to be acceptable of God. But what does the word of God say about his church? First of all, the church is a spiritual body consisting of all true believers from wherever they may hail. Isn't that liberating? Because it is an invisible church, there are a number of illustrations that the word uses. There are probably more than illustrations, actually, to help us understand the church. One, they they call the, the church 
the body of Christ, okay? They, they also call it the bride of Christ. And there's also some reference, even though it's really talking about the temple, but it is talking about the temple, uh, a building, and the building being a, uh, created fitly, jointly put together by believers. Speaking of Christ as the head of the church, Ephesians 4.16 says, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. It's a lot of complex phrases in that single verse, but what it's saying is that we are all brought together, Christ being the head in this body, we're jointly fit together with our talents and things spiritually from wherever we are to create this church that is uh, God's. Now certainly church is used in scripture, like I said, to define a local gathering of one or two or many in homes, in places, different cities, they're called the church there, the church of this, the church of that. But why do I call the true church the invisible church? There's several reasons. First, most of the members of the true church have passed to the other side. I mean, maybe, maybe not most, but many of them have. And, but they remain a part of the body and bride of Christ and the invisible building of Christ because that they are part of his church. Secondly, many people may have not been born or many people may be on the earth who have not received the Holy Spirit, to make them a member of this invisible church. And so we don't know who they are, but in God's omniscience, he knows that out there, there are more who are coming. Third, we really can't tell who's a member of this church. We go back to the parable or the teaching that Jesus gave of the wheat and the tares. And he says, we can't really tell the difference between the two. And so the genuine members often remain wholly unknown to us. So there's another reason we can call it the invisible church. Fourth, believers are constituted by their faith in Jesus Christ. And we really can't, we can see signs, but we really can't say that Susan here has faith and Michael here does not. We, we can hear what they say, we can watch their works, we can see the love they share, but it's truly impossible because the things that make a member of the church are invisible to us. They're outside of our sensory perceptions. Now this invisible organization of believers who come in every shape and color and size and gender and mental capacity and political party and, and span of time, they bear some universal characteristics, all right? First, this church is historically unified. God has only and ever only had one church, okay? We sometimes speak of the Old Testament synagogue and of the New Testament church, but they are one and the same. The Old Testament church was not to be changed, but to be enlarged, to include the Gentiles, okay? Isaiah 61 through 14 beautifully details this if you want to look that up. When the Jews at length are restored, they will enter not a new church, but they will be grafted back into their own olive tree. And that's based on Romans 11, 18 through 24 and Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Acts 2, 27 tells us plainly that the apostles did not set up a new organization. Under their ministry, it says, disciples were added to the church already in existence. In fact, if you want to know something really radical, and we might get some writings on this, but I, I find this extremely believable. The 3,000 Jewish souls who received Christ at the day of Pentecost, when Peter was speaking to them, uh, they were already uh, members of the church 
the church was already theirs. It says they were added to. It doesn't say those souls were saved. There's a, there's a slight difference there, and I don't want to get too technical, but this is just showing this has been one church, and there's going to be a grafting in. Bottom line, there has, is, and only ever will be one church of God, one body of Christ. Second, as we have said, God's church is universal. It is the Catholic church. Now, that, I don't mean it's the Catholic church proper today. Catholic is a word for universal, and it's the universal church. That's what that word Catholic means. And it's not confined, as we said, to any country or or origin. And it doesn't have any headquarters here on earth. Its head is in heaven. Finally, the church has um, uh, the big words perpetuity. It continues on and on. It will continue throughout the ages and to the end of the world. It will never be destroyed. The gates of hell have not prevailed against it. And it's an everlasting kingdom. And we're going to talk more about that when we talk about the LDS errant view of the need for a restoration. Let me conclude by appealing to your God-given right to think here. And then we're going to go to the phones. Not just to be told what to think, but take this and think and search yourself. And then let me appeal by talking to you... um, how you think God himself would have done this. And on the one hand, we have an explanation from the Christian side that this world fell into darkness because of sin. And God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to become flesh and blood and to embody the fullness of God and uh, to take back the title deed to this fallen world uh, through his perfectly shed blood. And once God himself finished this work, work which we could not ever do ourselves. He tells his people to just believe on him and the work he did and then to walk with him. Now ask yourself, what would this church look like after this savior came and did that? I would suggest that it would look exactly like the Bible describes it, a spiritual, universal, never denominational, it is finished kind of place where all the focus and praise is on Jesus and nothing else, okay? Now, if the fall is considered a good thing, like the LDS say, and if we are all born children of God, as the LDS say, and if Jesus is just a part of what it takes to be saved, what would that church look like? It would be a man-made, authoritarian, priestly, covenant-making, temple ritual-doing, ordinance-laden, good works-demanded institution of pressures and bondage. Again, the choice is yours. Jesus, the liberty he affords, or Joseph, and the extreme bondage he has inflicted on people for the past 150 years. With that, let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973. TV 20, first time callers if possible, LDS callers uh, if we can, and uh, please turn down your television sets once the operators put you on hold. And listen, we want to thank each and every one of you for supporting Aletheia Ministries and Heart of the Matter. There are those of you who give the widow's might, and we really appreciate it, and we know your hearts, and you keep us in prayer. And there are others who have volunteered and support us through activities and supply with with uh, larger donations. We thank you for all of it. We're grateful that uh, for everything everyone does, and we are moving toward the uh, potential, if we get accepted, to be on the NRB network and uh, working towards that. So let's check out the spot for our partners program, which helps Aletheia Ministries stay alive and well, and we'll come back and take your calls.
watching Heart of the Matter, a live weekly television program right here from the Mecca of Mormonism. We've been on the air for almost four years now. Now, we're a tax-exempt corporation, and we survive solely on your financial support. There are two ways that you can uh, help support this ministry financially, through the mail or through the Internet. Now, some people give as they can. And everything is a great blessing to us. We are so grateful for the support people have given over the years. We also invite anyone inclined to join with us in this fruitful ministry by becoming a partner. And this simply means you're in a position to contribute a certain amount annually, which greatly helps us with our planning. Be our friend, become our partner, but we do need your support if you're so inclined of the Lord and you have already given to the church. For more information, call 888-868-HOTM or 888-868-4686. Write to us at 314 South Redwood Road, Salt Lake City, 84104 or get on the internet www.hotm.tv for more information god bless y'all welcome back you know i can't be sure of this but i would be willing to bet say 20 cents um that the most prolific individuals on this earth fortify their bodies and minds with this product called green thp i mean certainly arnold schwarzenegger Governor of California must have a glass of green tea HP every now and then. I don't know it, but I would be willing. Tiger Woods, maybe not Tiger Woods, but uh, then again, maybe. We don't know. Um, Obama, I bet he took office because of his usage of green tea HP. One glass of green tea HP every day is the equivalent of 50 glasses of green tea. And that's power, my sisters and brothers. It makes you strong. So uh, anyway, I can't confirm this, but I have the sneak sneaking suspicion too that these prolific people actually get their green THP from Dave at the Grand Teton Mall in Idaho, his little kiosk there, or by calling him with that number that's right there in your screen. I drink it. Maybe other people should drink it too. Uh, call Dave and get the power and energy I'm sure all the world leaders get from Dave's Green Tea HP. Numbers on the screen. Hey, we are going to go to Charles in West Valley City. Dennis is coming up, but a couple things in terms of uh, emails. Uh, we have a man, his name is Philip A. Gill. He's in the UK and he says he is a prophet in the Church of the Latter-day Church of Jesus Christ. It's not the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's the Church of the Latter-day Church of Jesus Christ. And he has translated a book called the Book of Jeronak, and he says it's equivalent with the Book of Mormon. And so we have dialogue back and forth, and they are preparing a video that we're going to show, a short video here, and he's going to answer the questions about why he is a prophet. He's, he was raised LDS, went on, a, uh, went on a Mormon mission and everything else, and we asked him about being a prophet and if he receives revelation and and about the book of Jeronak. And so stay tuned for that. That's coming up in the next few weeks when we hear about this other man who claims to have been a prophet, claims to be a prophet in an LDS church in the UK and is starting his own section, believes that the book of Jeronak is the continuation of the book of Mormon. Stephen uh, asks, hi, Sean, I just wanted to encourage you by telling your ministry is far reaching. I live in a small town in Oxfordshire, England called Wantage. I watch your show when I call your... Uh, 
when I call on your website, and I just want to say the blessing is a thousand miles away. So, Steve, we, we are glad you're watching out there in Wadentage. And then Stephen Dunn asks, I, I am thankful for your show, but I must confess my heart sinks sometimes when you miss a question meaning I miss an opportunity to, to say it. This has happened twice while recently listening to past shows. And I just want to assure you, Steve, that I'm going to miss a lot. And we just do the best we can. Uh, there are people far more superior in their knowledge, in their ability to deliver, uh, whatever it is, uh, information. And, um, but we just kind of go and we do our best. And I think that's really the point of it, right? That God will take us as we are and he'll use you in whatever capacity you're willing to be used. And uh, it's not going to be perfect, but it works. Let's try Charlie in West Valley, Utah. Charles, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi, Charles. Uh, I'm basically just calling to make a statement. I, I, I uh, recently had an encounter with uh, an LDS friend, and I brought up the, uh, you know, the first vision to him and showed it to him. And his statement was exactly what we've been explaining to, or your, what you've explained. He said that we're attacking the church and that we simply always seem to get together and, and create a coalition and, and want to attack the church when they never attack us. Yeah. But he didn't acknowledge the first vision at all. And when I approached him with it, he, you know, he came back with, well, you just attack us and you want to cut us down. I'd like to make a plea to, to our listeners out there, the LDS listeners, that we're not trying to attack. We're just simply trying to reach out and show them a little bit of truth. And it's, is it that difficult for them to look at some of the truth? Wow. That's a really good point, Charles. When you talked to your friend, was it about the first vision and the many different accounts? Not the many different accounts, but how they simply, you know, of, of the vision was that all the creeds were abominations. Oh. I see. And, and all the, everything that was in the Christian and what Christian stands for are abominations to the church. Yeah. And he could answer that. And then I asked him, now, is it my understanding that you try to do works here on earth? And I tried to show him Ephesians, and he said, well, you can't do that because let me explain something to you. And he went into this explanation of, now, if you are, if were a father and you have children, wouldn't you want your children to do better than you? Wouldn't you want them to be higher on the ladder? Like, for instance, if you were in an occupation, wouldn't you want them to be a higher or have exalted higher than you? And I, I tried to explain to him, so wait a minute, you're trying to tell me that you, the Heavenly Father, God, Almighty God, Creator of all things, wants us to be exalted higher than He is in His position as Creator? Yeah. It's... <laughs> so, it's it's really a disparaging view of Almighty God. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's very sad. So I'm just calling out to our listeners, LDS listeners. We're trying to reach out, not condemn. Hey, great call. Thank you, Charles. You bet. God, God bless. A couple things about that. You know, we talked about this last week. We present Mormonism. Those were all quotes, verifiable quotes from Mormon archives, from their history. That's not anti-Mormon. What Charles was saying is, hey, we're just bringing up what we believe is true. It don't say it's an attack on you. Just tell us how we're wrong or how you're right. So it's really good. And you know, when people say to me, the LDS uh, are prone to use that, well, wouldn't, as a father, don't you want your son to become equal to what you've done or better than you? And they use that for their uh, progressional theology of advancing to becoming a God and having your own universe, et cetera. And if that's the perspective, 
then that makes some sense. But scripture never, I mean, scripture says God is not a man. I mean, scripture completely separates men and, and women and, our, and who we are as created from God and his holiness and righteousness and his eternality. So I like to say maybe it would be more like if you were a, uh, a pet lover and you had a bunch of hamsters and for you to say, well, if, would you want your hamster to get better than you? You know, do you want your hamster to grow up and, and, and rise above the level that you are? And the thing is, no, you love your hamster, you feed your hamster, you give him the wheel to run on, but you don't want the hamster to become better than you. It's not going to run your company or drive your kids to school. And, and that's, that's a really bad comparison of the difference between man and God, because we are far less. I mean, didn't, didn't David say I'm a worm or was that Isaiah? I mean, we are so much less than God. And yet they have this anthropomorphic God was once a man view of him. And so all respect is lost. What a shame. And, and I've always said, you know, when Latter-day Saints die, they are going to be terrified. Uh, not necessarily because they're all going to hell, but because they're going to see the Shekinah glory of God. And they're going to say, I'm sorry I ever thought that you had long gray hair, man. I mean, they're going to be shocked by what he is. They're going to be undone, as Isaiah said. So, all right, let's go to Natalie in Denver, Colorado. Natalie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Well, Sean, this is Natalie from Denver. First time caller, many tiny e-namers. I'm glad you're calling, Natalie. How are you? I am excellent. And one of the reasons that I'm excellent is because you convinced me to jump ship. Awesome. When, and, you're getting applause. You know, um, maybe I'm getting applause. Um, I, I want to give a testimony. Okay. And that is this, that there was a shift in the spirit world. Okay. Hmm. It, you know, I've been out of Mormonism for a long, long time and, you know, kind of just thought I didn't need to actually go through that process, that there has been a shift in the spirit world that is significant, and uh, I just want to encourage people to do that. Well, that's a great testimony, and there is a spiritual shift, isn't there? Yeah, there really is. For me, it was palpable. And the other thing, if I can, one more thing. Yeah. This last, uh, this last week, I found this really incredible uh, verse by verse study on YouTube, who, and who? so I, I have been watching it, and um, my daughter and son-in-law are still active in the LDS Church. She's a bishop. She's in the State Relations Society presidency, and so you know we were just talking, and I said, "Man, I just ran across this phenomenal Bible study." And she said, Mom, don't even say anything about that. You know that there was so much loss. Don't talk to me about the Bible. Huh. Great story, Natalie. Thanks so much. You're welcome. It is great to talk to you. Okay. Be blessed, Sean. You too. God bless. Bye-bye. Hey, we're going to go to Dennis and Murray. First time caller in just a second. Uh, we got an email from Paul in Concord, California, and he says, The more I read the Book of Mormon... Uh, and the more I follow the rules, the more I seem to get blessed. Is there some demonic force behind these so-called blessings, or are they bribes from Satan in disguise? These blessings is what makes me scared to leave the LDS Church. I'm scared of losing my blessings. 
You know, I, I, I have a theory and a belief behind this. I believe that Mormonism is a kingdom set up for this world. And I believe that when you participate in what they suggest that you do, and you do it with all your might and your heart, that you can benefit from the blessings this world can afford you. And with those blessings does not come the physical destruction that comes with living wantonly in this world. So where Satan would take a, a heavy metal band that sells their soul to him, and he will give them fame and popularity and will destroy them over time through whatever, I believe that the God of this world will reward those who do uh, works of light with the things of this world, but they have their reward. So I, Gordon B. Hinckley, in a quote I read just a minute ago, said, if you want happiness in this life, do not waver from your dedication to the church. I, they call uh, Provo area Happy Valley. Of course, it's probably happy because of the Prozac use, but nevertheless, they call it Happy Valley. And, and so there is some, something to being part of a system like that. I would imagine that, that members of the Third Reich, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed uh, men in, in brown and, 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 and green, were very happy with coming home to their orderly houses. I believe that there is happiness towards doing many of the things the LDS say as a reward for goodness. But you have your reward. It's really interesting that the opposite is true within Christianity, that Christ said, if you follow me, you can expect to be persecuted. You are going to be not part of this world, and it's going to hate you. So it, the gospel, if you read through, you do not find this, this stick to it and be happy and, and blessed uh, uh, theology that comes with Mormonism. So I think you're onto something, Paul. I mean, it's the same thing as a member of the mafia who's afraid to leave it. Because, you know, hey, it's a good life. My, we get all the best meat and, 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 and the nicest cars. Or, or, or uh, like the guy in the picture of Dorian Gray. He gets to keep his looks. But, but, you know, and he's afraid to turn it in because all the ugliness will come back upon him. I think there is something to that. And some of you LDS might need to consider that as well. We're going to Dennis in Murray, Utah. First time caller. Dennis, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, hello, Sean. This is uh, Dennis Espinosa. Hello, Dennis. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Yourself? I'm doing fine. That's a major surgery, but uh, we're doing okay. Well, I uh, wanted to say that I appreciate that your calling is to point out the differences between Mormonism and biblical Christianity. Uh, and I appreciate that you're calling. I find it unfortunate that there's not a similar voice because in structured Christianity, as I found it in Utah, a lot of your same criticisms apply to uh, the structured Christian church. In, the, in terms of what? Well, uh, to give you an example, the Mormons have a formalized priesthood, and because of sort of the kingdom building of uh, that, I, that I see in churches uh, and the hard vertical structure, uh, it tends to minimize the priesthood of every believer, and there ends up being you know haves and have so-called haves and have not spiritually, uh, which is which is artificial really, and there ends up being a sort of a pseudo priesthood, even though it doesn't have a formal name. That's, that's, a, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of uh, uh, words to tie uh, what you see maybe in a local church who might have a top-heavy, authoritative uh, uh, hand on their congregants to the LDS church and their, and their priesthood authority. I don't see that commonality with the churches in Utah. I see a lot of autonomy. I see a lot of freedom in many Christian churches here in the state. 
And, and there, you may have some specific examples in, in specific certain denominations, but it, in my experience, I do not see that in the, in the body of Christ here in, in Utah. I've, I've seen, it, seen it over again, too. One of the things I think that makes the Christian church impotent is the fact that, you know, uh, leadership should be a calling and not a career choice. If you look at the Old Testament and New Testament, the people that were selected for leadership weren't seeking it. Uh, from Elisha to the disciples, uh, God chose them, and he often, and he often affirmed their choice by, by supernatural acts. From Aaron not even wanting leadership, and to the planting of the, planting of the sticks and Aaron's, Aaron, Aaron's rod well, sprouting. And having, the, and having said that, Dennis, you know, it's, it's funny because I've been here in the state for a, a while now, and the pastors I meet... This is one of the most difficult uh, states to do Christian work in, in my opinion. And these guys, they are not uh, in it as a career choice. They're in it because they were called. And you don't, you don't step to that pulpit uh, because it's a career choice of poverty and struggling and having people whine on your shoulder all day long. So I think you're being a little hard. I think maybe you're a little bit uh, cynical because maybe you've been overlooked. Maybe you haven't been called to positions you want. And you, and you feel overlooked, and you think that these men don't belong doing what they do. But I think you're doing a disservice. I mean, I can see pointing out facts of how things go, but to specifically label Utah as a place where there is a, a, a priesthood existing that's similar to the LDS is wholly faulty. Sorry, my friend. I don't, I don't really believe so, and there's plenty of opportunities to do Christian work and feed the, feed the hungry. Close well, I hope you're doing it. I hope you're doing it. I'm Thanks doing so much. It. Take care. Bye-bye. We're going to Stephen in Australia. First-time caller. Stephen Hello. in Australia. How you hey. doing? Hey, I'm doing very well, thanks. I'm so glad to be on the air. Oh, we're really glad to have you. You're our first Australian. Oh, brilliant. Um, and I'm only, I'm only here because I'm married an Australian. I'm actually secretly an American. Oh. But, uh, you know, I've got residency, so I'm kind of legit. You're, you're kind of anyway. Australian. Yeah. I was, I was about to say, Stephen, I'll bet you're really handsome, because the women and men in Australia are very handsome people, but now I'm not going to say that. Well, you can say that my wife's pretty. Uh, okay, your That's wife, okay. I'm sure, yes. All right. Well, hey, I'm calling to say uh, I'm a huge fan of your show. I'm meeting with some Mormon missionaries in the near future, or I have been meeting with them, and I'm going to meet with them on Thursday. And I have been sort of... I wish that this show would have, like, a standard list of responses to all the standard questions, because there's not a lot of originality, I've noticed, among the LDS. I've started studying it since the missionaries wanted to meet with me. Yeah. Um, and I also wanted to say, I wanted to suggest, uh, a few weeks ago, maybe, you had a caller that said something along the lines of, you can't, uh, just as you can't prove that Jesus performed any miracles, we can't prove that the Book of Mormon uh, actually took place, and so yeah. we're on equal ground. Yeah. That drives me crazy, because there are actually rabbis who said that Jesus performed magic miracles by dark arts. So they hated Jesus, and they still acknowledged that miracles took place. Yeah. They just questioned how it was that they took place. Are you finding, and, Stephen, in uh, your dialogue with these missionaries, that facts really don't matter? It's just polemics and an ability to debate and argue, and, or, and winning is more important than really being truthful? Well, I've read, no, I've read the book, um, uh, I Heart Mormons, and uh, in preparation for meeting with them, and I realized, like, the guy was so good. He said, Mormons are heart people, not head people. And so just try to show them love and gently give them something to work with. 
and that was really helpful for me to realize because I was I was pretty surprised at the way they just didn't answer questions yeah. and they thought that was okay. Yeah. Um, but also, there's one other thing, Sean. Um, I noticed uh, a guy called in saying that like the Gospels are from 200 years AD or something like that. I just wanted to let you know that First Corinthians 15, three through eight has been dated to months after the resurrection of Jesus. That's huh. where Paul says, I passed on to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And it goes on and on. But uh, this is really early oral history. And it's not a problem for an oral history culture if they don't have everything written down yeah. uh, because they don't do writing. Yeah. They're, they do oral. Really, really anyway, good points. You sound like a very sharp man. Oh, that's kind of you to say. Do you have any last uh, points to leave me with for talking to the missionaries on Thursday? Uh, like a general approach. What do you use? Or how do you frame things? Uh, a member of our audience had something to say. I don't know. What was that? What was that? Yoli? Oh, uh, he says go to utlm.org. Try that out. I would suggest that you talk to them, Stephen, about two things. Sin. Yes. And if they are born again, the John 3.3 3 okay. method, and try to get and help them understand John 3.3 3 and let them read past verse 6 and get into 7 and 8 and talk about rebirth and ask them if they've been born again and just uh, focus on that. And then also missionaries don't like to talk about their sin. So really okay. talk to them about their sin. They're young men out there trying to be perfect and just really kind of hone in on their sin. And what do they do with it? If they're working for their salvation, there's things they need to do for it. What do they do with sin in the interim? That's how I would approach it at the Holy Spirit Guide. Okay, so John 3, 3 through 8, and sin. Sin, yeah, definitely. Hey, Sean, thanks so much, and God bless in all your work. Thanks for watching, Stephen. Thanks for the great insights. Okay, have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. We're going to Ben in Salt Lake City. Ben is a first-time caller. Ben, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Hey, I just had a question. Uh, me and this girl were dating for uh, six months, and she's LES. And um, it came down to either me getting uh, becoming LDS and getting married in the temple or breaking up, and I decided to break up. But I was curious, like, why do they get married in the temple if they get if Mormons get divorces too? And it says about eternity and all this stuff. Like, why? What? What's the whole big idea behind that? And if someone is LDS and they don't get married in the temple. Is that a big deal to them, or do they get prosecuted or whatever? Yeah, uh, it's a big deal. Uh, more, temple marriage is perhaps singularly the most important deal in the Mormon church. Uh, might even be more important than young men serving missions now. I mean, to get married in the temple, all the young women from a very young age are taught, you know, that's, the, that's their goal, get married in the temple, get married in the temple. Keep yourself prepared and worthy to marry in the temple. And the reason they do that is because once you get to that place and you make all these covenants and you swear to start wearing these uh, sacred undergarments every day of your life and you and your spouse do all these rituals together, it's like you're at the point of no return. I mean, some, some spouses will walk away and say no more, but other ones are really tied then to the church. And then what happens is if one spouse diverts from what they promised in the temple... The other one that is always asked, well, are you being worthy to your temple oaths and covenants? 
And they'll say in the interview, well, yes, I am. Well, you let your husband or you let your wife go that way, but you stay faithful. And so they're able with that building and what they do in that to at least keep some of the family together through this process. Doesn't always work, but it works much better at cementing people to the LDS church uh, than to just say, oh, we do civil marriages in a chapel, come on and go on. So it is probably the focal point in the Mormon church, temple marriage. Wow. Um, and just real quick, uh, if uh, they say if you get married in a temple, you're married for eternity, right? Yeah. And it, does it say anything about that in the Bible? I mean, with the, it says till death do us part, right? I mean, it's, It says the opposite in the Bible. Uh, Jesus says those who are of this world marry and are given in marriage. Jesus said in marriage they are not given. I mean, in heaven they are not given in marriage. I mean, he, he says the opposite about what Joseph Smith said. Again, it's a choice for them to believe Joseph and his new revelations or to believe Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, man. I'm, I'm glad I didn't join that. <laughs> I... Uh, and uh, you... uh, that's all I have, Sean. Uh, have a good day. Hey, Ben, you have no idea how glad you are you didn't join. <laughs> okay, good. I'm thanks, happy. Thanks for watching, better. my friend. Okay, see you, okay, John. Bye-bye. Uh, we have Brandon and, uh, gosh, from Provo, first-time caller. We're going to see what he's about. Brandon, we've only got a minute left. What's happening? Hello. Hey, Brandon, you're on the air. Hey, this is Harley O'Hurley. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Are you up to speed on uh, Lamanite DNA and mitochondrial DNA haplogroup X? A uh, little bit. Go to Firm Foundation, you'll find out that there's corroboration for the Book of Mormon with the Hopewell Indians and the Mound Builders and uh, Haplogroup X. Uh, Haplogroup X, mitochondrial DNA, comes from the Near East and from Europe, so it's a, it's a Caucasian strain of, of mitochondrial DNA. You're using a lot of big words there for a Scottish man. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm an Irish-Scottish man. Oh. Well, you know, so you're saying that there is, uh, there is DNA evidence for the Book of Mormon? Yes, there is. Go to Firm Foundation. There is. Absolutely. You see, the, the anti-Mormons came out in about 2003 and said that haplogroups A, B, C, and D proved that Indians are Oriental. But a little later, it came out that uh, haplogroup X proves Caucasian. Uh, and and the mound that. builders show a, show, show a connection between Egypt and... Uh, and uh, Sure. And Hebraic origins of, course. of the uh, Lamanites. All right, man, thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, listen, wh what that is is it's called a big red herring, talk-over-your-head speech, sound official, use words we don't understand, make it sound like it's a really good deal, but I can bet you, I'll bet you 20 cents, it's absolutely untrue. I'll bet you 20 cents, absolutely untrue. In terms of verifying the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Oh, yeah.
see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.